Well, New Year begins tomorrow, and uh, I think some of us are maybe thinking about new beginnings, and I don't know how many do New Year's resolutions, but if you do, it's a good time to kind of assess this previous year and think about what changes you might want to make for this next year. So we continue talking about hope, and this is our last message on hope, and I wanted to do something that is related to the new year, so I want to talk about the new birth out of Peter, 1 Peter 1, verses 3 and 5, and hopefully it will wrap up our series on hope as we move back into Mark next Sunday. So the metaphor we want to latch our imagination onto today has to do with birth and family and inheritance and destiny. And if you think about this phrase, I mean, I've titled this sermon, Born to Hope, but if you think about that phrase commonly used, we all say, I was born to do what? You know, many answers to that, right? The Disney answer is, I was born to dance, or I was born to sing, right? Rock and roll answer is, I was born to what? Run, or born to be wild, something like that. The French existentialist would say, I was born to die, not, not surprisingly, right? As they, as they button their trench coats, they, they would say that. Um, what is the biblical answer? What is the, the essence of the Christian? If we were to say, I was born to, what would it be? And the biblical answer here in our text is, we were born to hope. Actually, hope, this living hope that Peter talks about, is, is, is not just something we do. It's not something marginal. It's not something peripheral. It's it's something that belongs to our essence. It belongs to our nature as, as Christians. As you are born again into God's family, and we'll, we'll talk about all that, you're also born to this living hope, to a new kind of life, and to a new kind of future. So let me read our passage to us. If you want to follow along, that's 1 Peter 1, verses 3 and 5, and then I will tell you how we're going to address it. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Wonderful passage, rich passage. Let me divide it under three headings. So three points to the sermon. One, new family. Two, new future. Three, new feelings, or feels if you want to be hip like me. So new family, new future, and new feels. Okay, verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Apostle Peter is writing his letter, and he begins, after a short greeting, he begins with the doxology. Doxology is this given of praise. That's what we did during pastoral prayer. Pastor Dave led us in this doxology where we thanked the Lord, we praised Him, we reflected on wonderful things He has done in our lives over the last year. And so Peter is here reflecting on something wonderful that the Lord has done. And the only proper response to this wonderful thing 
is to praise him, to bless him, to thank him. So what has God done according to his great mercy to us? He has caused us to be born again. He has caused us to be born again. As Peter reflects on this new birth, new identity in Christ, he can't help but bless the Lord, praise him. Now this new birth is a biblical concept that explains a profound change that happens when our relationship with God is restored. This is the very beginning of our life with God. For a person to be reconciled to God, to be at peace with God, something must change internally for them. Because in our old sinful nature, we do not desire God. We do not love Him. We don't want to obey Him. We don't want to serve Him. We don't want to worship Him. And so the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, gives us a new nature. I mean, this is, this is an amazing thing that the Bible claims is true and Christians know is true from experience that God the Holy Spirit actually remakes us. He remakes us into the image of Christ and gives us a new nature. Something new happens and we're like a, a new baby. We're born again. We're born into a new reality. We're born into a relationship with God. No one can be a Christian to be truly converted, to be at peace, reconciled with God, unless they have been born again, unless they have experienced this profound internal change that comes from the Holy Spirit. So praising God for this profound internal change, this regeneration, Peter points to one of the effects of this new birth. Now look at the context of our passage. He calls God Father, and he draws our attention to our inheritance. All that means that being born again brings us into a new family. It doesn't just transform our nature. It actually transforms our association, our affiliation. It brings us into a different kind of family. The same Spirit who gives us a new heart, a heart that loves God, a heart that desires God, the same Spirit is called the Spirit of Adoption. And He bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Being born again, being born of the Spirit, being born from above, means joining a new family, means joining God's family. Now notice how Peter is careful to disabuse us of any notion that our becoming of God's family is somehow our own work, somehow done by us, that we just decided to join this family. Well, that's not how babies are born. Babies are just born into whatever family they belong to. And so here, Peter says that all of this is happening according to God's great mercy. According to God's great mercy, we are adopted into a new family. We are supernaturally brought into this new family. And now notice that Peter is clear on who makes this new birth or new adoption possible. We are born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We are born through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. My new son-in-law and I were bonding over Christmas, and we're talking about preaching because he's going into ministry. 
So I'm sharing all these pearls of wisdom with him. <laughs> Very much enjoying that conversation. And I, you know, and we're talking about Christ-centered preaching. We're talking about how every sermon has to get to the gospel. Because every passage of scripture is about Jesus. And so any good preacher has to get to Jesus in any sermon. Every sermon needs to be a Christ-centered, gospel-centered sermon. And I told him, well, I usually get there at the end. I usually try to tie everything up at the end and, and give you kind of that, that, that boost at the, the end of the sermon to lead you to the table. That's kind of how I do it. But I told him, but sometimes, depending on the text, it could happen early. It could happen in the middle of the sermon. It doesn't have to happen in the end. And this is where it happens here. It's in the beginning. Because Peter starts with that. Peter starts with the gospel. He doesn't want us to wait. He doesn't want us to, to start thinking about this new birth apart from Christ. He doesn't want us to think about our inheritance apart from what Jesus has done for us. And so begins with, he begins with talking about this great mercy of God bringing us into his family. Talking about the resurrection of Jesus as being the basis for our new birth. So I want to follow Peter and not letting us think about our new family without thinking about what Jesus has done for us to bring us into it. So what did he do? Jesus died and rose again. Those are the simple, clear facts of the gospel, of this good news, this, this central message of Christianity. And because Jesus died and rose again, we too die to our old, old nature and rise again to our new nature as God's children. So you see how Jesus did something in our place so we can be something in his place. Now this is the symbolism of baptism. And by the way, next Sunday, we'll have a baptism here. And if you have not been baptized, talk to me. It's still not too late to be baptized next Sunday if you have not been baptized. But the symbolism is we go into the water and we come out of the water. We die and we rise. Now, if I'm just doing that by myself without no connection to Christ, I'm just taking a bath, right? That's all that's happening. But if I'm doing that in association and connection in my attachment by faith to Christ, what is happening? I'm saying, as Jesus died for me, so I die to sin. As Jesus rose again for me, so I rise again to a new life with God. Part of a new family, having a new inheritance, having a new identity. Jesus took our place on the cross and in the tomb so we can take his place in God's house and at God's table. Jesus was rejected by the Father on the cross so we can be accepted by the Father as his adopted children. The resurrection of Jesus is the only basis for the Spirit's work of regeneration, of giving us new life. Because Jesus, on our behalf, overcame death, the Spirit can give us new life. This is the gospel. This is the foundation of everything. And this is the center of every message, every idea, every biblical passage, and everything you do in life as a Christian. Everything is rooted and centered on that. Now look at how Peter addresses God. Even, even the way he thinks of God is, is, is gospel-centered and gospel-shaped. He addresses God in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not just our Father, 
but the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you can't, be a, you can't call God Father unless you also call Jesus Lord. Those are connected. Nobody can say I'm a child of God unless you also claim that Jesus died and rose for you. Through his resurrection, Jesus shares his own life as the Son of the Father with us. And so God is our Father because he is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who died and rose for us. Our adoption is through Christ, achieved for us by his death and resurrection. Now, do you remember after Jesus rose again, he had this wonderful conversation with Mary, one of the disciples who was particularly distraught by his death. And so Mary's in the garden, and she can't quite figure out what's going on. She, can't, she doesn't recognize Jesus, the risen Jesus. And Jesus tells her, tells Mary, do not cling to me, because she's just trying to hold on to him. Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Do you see how Jesus is connecting us to God? Because he is the son of his father, and because he died and rose again in our place, now we can claim God as our father. We can claim his God as our God. We can be in the same family that he is in. This is the sharing of life through the resurrection. When Jesus rose again, he brought out this life. And this life includes a new relationship with God, a new familial relationship with God. Now, I wonder if, if you praise God for your new family. I wonder if you have been born again. I wonder if these truths, these, these truths are realities for you, not just things we talk about in church, but you actually are part of this new family, co-heir with Christ because of his death and resurrection, now belong to God forever. That's your new family. If you're a Christian, this is who you are. You belong to this new family a family of God. Now there's also a new future in verse 4. Here Peter extends the fam family metaphor to include inheritance. It says that we have been born to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Now these three descriptions, and by the way, alliterated in the Greek. So if you have any issues with me alliterating, I'm alliterating again. I'm, I'm, I'm back on alliteration. So I'm just doing what's biblical because Peter is alliterating these, these three words here. And these three descriptions, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, tell us what our future as God's children will be. Just these three little words. Now, of course, you can get a lot more content. Uh, if you are doing a Bible in a year plan, most likely you are finishing up Revelation today, right? If you're if you're on track, or maybe you're starting Revelation today, I don't know, some, some of us may be a little behind. That's okay, but you will get to the last two chapters of Revelation, which is how the Bible ends. This is the conclusion of God's book. And it gives us this, this description. I mean, it's, it's very visual. But of course, those are all, all images for us to, to, to use our imagination, for us to to be excited about what's, what's coming for us. Now, that's, that's a description. John gives us two chapters. That's a description of our inheritance, of our future. 
Peter just gives us three words. So I'll, I'll do three words now, okay? And you read the two chapters later today. So we're looking at these three words, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And this describes what our future will be like. Imperishable simply means something that cannot perish. It's indestructible, or, or we can say death-proof. Our future, as hard as it, as it is to imagine for us, our future will be unaffected by death. Unaffected by death. Sin has brought death into our world. And it is so common, death is so common that it's impossible for us to imagine existence without it. Most people, in fact, death is so common that most people think death is part of life. They actually conflate the two. And they're saying, well, that's just part of life. You know, we live and we die. That's just the circle of life. And that's just how things are. That is not actually how things are supposed to be. I mean, it's, it's amazing because we're so used to it, right? We deal with death and the effects of death all the time. But God wants to give us a future without death. The Lord offers eternal life to us. Now, most of us think of eternal as just really long, right? It just, just keeps going and going and going. Yeah, that is one of the qualities, certainly. But eternal probably has to do more with the nature of it. It's something that's unaffected by death. It cannot be interrupted. It cannot be disrupted. It cannot end because there's no death, you see. So our future, this imperishable inheritance, includes eternal life or life without death. Second is the description of our inheritance is it's undefiled. It means unstained by evil or sin-proof. Our future will be unaffected by sin. Again, another puzzle, right? None of, none of us can imagine a world, a life, a heart, a relationship without sin. I mean, that's just all our experience is sin. But God says your inheritance in Christ is undefiled. It means it's not susceptible to sin. There will quite literally be nothing wrong with our lives, with our world, with ourselves. Can you imagine that? On your best day, right? On your best day, you're just kind of keeping the wrong at bay. But in eternity, when we are with him, when the world is restored, there will not be any trace of anything wrong. There will be no experience of anything wrong. There will be nothing unclean, uh, no, no pollution of sin, no stain, no hint, no tint of sin. There will be no suffering or pain. You see, suffering and pain, uh, that's all the result of sin. Even when God is using it for our good, and God does that, even when God is bringing good things out of our suffering and our pain, it's still rooted in sin in some way. He's still addressing sin. He's still reacting to sin. He's still trying to eliminate sin in your life, even through suffering. But part of our inheritance is living in a world and being the kind of person that has no experience of sin anymore. There'll be 
nothing gross, nothing disgusting, nothing repulsive. I mean, can you imagine? Everything is good. Everything as it should be. That's our future. Undefiled inheritance. And then the final word Peter gives us is unfading. Unfading. It means not susceptible to getting old. It's decay-proof. Death-proof, sin-proof, and decay-proof. Our future will be eternal, except that time will not bring any, anything old into it. Time will, will whether, and I'm, I'm not making a, a metaphysical statement, okay? I don't know if there'll be time or no time, and we can spend a few hours talking about that, as many of you have at one point in your life. But somehow the progression of events, the passage, the series of experiences will not lead to anything getting older. Our future will be eternal. I imagine getting wiser but not weaker. I, I claim that I've reached that point now in my life. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm as wise as I've ever been, and I'm not yet declining in my health, right? So I'm, I'm at that point, which maybe I've passed it yesterday, I don't know. It's, I'm at that point, right, where, where my, my body and my, my brain... I still don't feel the effects of time. I'm starting to, but it's not quite there yet. And yet I have the wealth of wisdom and experience. But you know that it changes very quickly, right? Tomorrow I'm probably going to be on the decline. I'll probably get wiser still, hopefully, right? But I'll get weaker. So I won't be able to use the wisdom that I, I accumulate as much as I can when I, when I used to be younger, but I, I wasn't wise, you see. Now imagine a world where you're getting wiser progressively, but you're never getting weaker. Imagine where you are growing more beautiful, and you don't have to preserve your beauty. You're not doing anything to preserve it or enhance it. With every day, you're actually becoming more and more beautiful. Imagine accumulating experience without forgetting anything. I mean, I, all of you have been to school, right? How much do you really remember? Come on. You can look it up and relearn it and remind yourself, hopefully, right? But some things are completely gone. They're just, they're gone. I mean, I, maybe I have passed that, that perfect peak in my life because now that I think about it, when, when some of you talk to me about a sermon I preached two weeks ago, I can look it up, and it sounds like something I would say, but I don't, I don't remember saying it. But imagine if you can keep growing and growing in knowledge and wisdom and experience in relationships, and yet you're not forgetting anything. You're not losing anything. Nothing is decaying. Nothing is being destroyed. Nothing is, is wearing down. That's our future without death, without sin, without evil, without decay. That is your inheritance because you belong to God's family through Christ. Because you belong to this new family, you share in everything the family has. 
Because you're co-heir with Christ, everything he has, now you are promised to have. Now we're still waiting, yes. So we're talking about hope because we're waiting to come into possession of that inheritance. But it is ours already. Because you're part of the family. Because you belong to that family, everything that family has now belongs to you. Okay, now I'm going to get a little more practical because I want us to enter this new year maybe with some some new dispositions, some new feelings, some, some new understandings, some new thought processes. So if you know this inheritance is yours, how would you live differently as you wait for it? Now Peter says we have a living hope. A living hope. A hope is connected to life. A hope that is here now. Meaning that this vision of the inheritance, this promise of the inheritance affects our life now. Hope is taking something from the future and pulling it into the present. You, you know something will happen, but you're not waiting for it to happen to start living differently. So you're actually pulling it in. And that works through imagination. We talked about it, I think, last week, but I don't remember. So, <laughs> but, but, but you take this image and you allow your heart to latch onto it. And now your imagination is firing and you're thinking about something that is to come which transforms who you are today. And so you live differently. Now imagine uh, you get a call from a lawyer, which is always alarming, but let's say it's a good call from a lawyer. And he says that you know, a, a, friend of your, a, a friend of your parents has passed away and he left his immense fortune for you. Rupert Wallington IV passed away and, and left his, his wealth, his vast fortune to you. Now you are in shock, didn't know it was going to happen, didn't know Rupert was favorable to you in any way, and so, so you say, okay, so what's the next step? The lawyer says, well, you need to sign some papers, we need to file some, some documents, you need to change your name, that was one of the conditions. You need to become Rupert Wallington V to officially inherit the fortune. And then you can come into, into this, this vast inheritance. And there are properties, there's money. He's invested in gold. He's invested in stocks. It's all over the world. It's a vast fortune. And the lawyer's not totally sure how long it's going to take. He thinks maybe you know, a couple of months for all the paperwork to go through and everything is to, to clear. And so you know, you don't know exactly when, but you know that pretty soon you're going to become one of the wealthiest people on the planet. Now, how would you live as you wait for all the paperwork to go through? You don't know exactly when, but you know it's coming. You know it's real. How would you feel as you wait? How would your your heart change? How would your mind change? How would you act differently as you wait? And that, by the way, as I was preparing for the sermon, that was my central question. I wanted to answer, how do I live as an heir of God? Amen. So if I'm an heir now, before I go into and possess the inheritance, but right now, how do I live as an heir? Is my life different now because of the living hope? And it must be. It must be. So I'm going to offer these three feelings to you, three dispositions, three attitudes 
to you as, and I think they're all in this text, to help us go into the new year with this different kind of life as an heir of God waiting for the inheritance. First, we should feel ambitious. We should feel ambitious. I'm going to redeem this term a little bit because it mostly has negative connotations in the Christian world. By ambition, I mean striving to live up to your new identity. You should feel ambitious, striving to live up to your new identity. While you have not come into your inheritance yet, you have been given a new identity. You are part of God's family, even as you're waiting for the future to come, but you are already part of God's family. You are already a co-heir, a fellow heir with Christ himself. So in this new year, aspire to live like a child of God. Aspire to actually act and feel and think and plan and treat others and serve as a child of God that you are. When Reese Witherspoon got pulled over by the police, quick, quick turn here. <laughs> like many celebrities in similar circumstances, she responded to the officer with a question. Do you know who I am? Do you know who I am? I wish this kind of swagger, right, would be a little more present in the church, would be a little more present among Christians when we're dealing with sin. When you are tempted by the enemy, why don't you turn to him and say, do you know who I am? Do you know, do you know who you're messing with? Child of God, bought with the blood of Jesus, indwelled by the Holy Spirit, and you are tempting me with this? With this trifle? You think you're going to offer me this temptation and I'm going to think anything of it as I'm waiting for my inheritance that is indestructible, unaffected by death, that is eternal, that is imperishable, that is unfading, that is undefiled. This is what I have. And you are offering me this? Do you know who I am? There is, there's the right kind of swagger, right? There's the right kind of ambition that belongs to every Christian. It is not rooted in our pride. It cannot be. It is not rooted in our own effort of me saying, look at me overcoming sin. No chance, right? But look at me as a child of God. According to His great mercy... He has redeemed me. According to His great mercy, He has caused me to be born again. Amen. I'm a new person. I've been given a new identity. I have a new name. I belong to a new family, and I have a new future. That kind of ambition, to live up to that. Now I know we struggle. I know we still have our old nature. I know sin is still very real. But don't you want to live up to who you really are in Christ and say, I will serve as a child of God. I will worship as a child of God. I will resist temptation as a child of God. I will believe as a child of God. I will have that kind of intimate, deep relationship with the Father because I'm adopted as His child. He has brought me into His home. He has put me at His table. 
He has given me the family business. I'm in. This is who I am. Now the, the question is, will you live up to that? Will you actually live like the child of God that you are? Now second, so the first one is we should feel ambitious. The second one, we should not be anxious. We should not be anxious. Now, if, if you look at, at, at 1 Peter, our passage, it, it's amazing what, how he describes this inheritance to us. He says, imperishable, undefiled, unfading. And then he says, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being, are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This inheritance is kept for you. <laughs> it's kept in heaven for you. God is saying it, it can be touched. He's keeping it for you. You, you shouldn't worry about getting the inheritance because God is keeping it for you. Nothing can happen to it because it's in heaven. It's, it's protected. Colossians 3, verses 3 and 4 say, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. If you're a Christian, that means your old identity is gone, and your new identity, your new life, is hidden, meaning it's protected, meaning it's kept, meaning it's kept safe, it's guarded with Christ in God. Which means that if you don't get your inheritance, God ceases to be God because He's keeping it for you. Because your identity is actually hidden in Him with Christ. I mean, this is an amazing statement, which means that we, we should be absolutely secure that our inheritance will be there for us. Okay, but there's another problem. <laughs> but what if I won't be there for my inheritance, right? If nothing can happen to my inheritance, can something happen to me? And Peter says, no, you are being guarded by God's power. You are being guarded for that. God is keeping you through your faith. God is keeping you for that inheritance. Now, Peter has covered all the bases here, right? The inheritance is kept for you. And you are kept for the inheritance. And God is doing both of those things. So we are absolutely secure. So when I think about the future, I think it's not dependent on me, you see. It's secure because it's rooted in God's mercy. Because according to God's mercy, he decided to bring me into his family and to give me this inheritance. And God's mercy... It just doesn't run out, does it? His steadfast love endures forever. As the psalmist tells us again and again and again, and sometimes in the same psalm, right? Because he wants us to know that his steadfast love endures forever, which means that everything he has promised must come true. It will come true. And you will have your inheritance. And thirdly and lastly, we should feel apocalyptic. We should feel apocalyptic. Not apoplectic, okay? <laughs> totally different word. So maybe a good resolution would be to move from apoplectic, which is very angry and rage-filled, maybe move from that to apocalyptic. Now let me explain what I mean by apocalyptic. 
in the world, in common usage, apocalyptic means catastrophic. It means thinking the end of the world is right around the corner, right? And most people would talk about feeling apocalyptic as feeling like the world is just going to end. It's catastrophic thinking. You know, psychologists are telling us there's such a thing as catastrophic thinking. When you, you're thinking about the future and you're thinking about the worst possible scenario, you're just thinking about the next catastrophe. Anything that can go wrong will go wrong. That's catastrophic thinking. And people equate that with apocalyptic thinking. But biblically, actually, apocalyptic literature is very positive. Now, in our text here, we're told that this salvation, this inheritance, this, this full life that we will receive, is, is ready to be revealed. Now, revealed is the same word as apocalypse. That's where we get revelation. The book of Revelation is the book of apocalypse. It's the same word. Which means that we're thinking, to think apocalyptically means to think about salvation that is to be revealed means to think about what God is going to do when Jesus returns. And because we're Christians, because we're part of his family, right? Jesus is coming to be with us. Jesus is coming to give us our inheritance. Jesus is coming to renew our world. And so apocalyptic thinking is actually very positive thinking. Now, there's bad things that are going to happen. But the main thing that's going to happen is going to be tremendously good. So apocalyptic thinking means actually thinking about the future in biblical terms as salvation that is about to be revealed, as full restoration that will be revealed to his children when Jesus returns. Now I heard this illustration from uh, Tara Lee Cobble from Bible Recap Podcast that I, this, is, this has been my, my uh, yearly plan this, this year, reading the Bible with Bible Recap. And, and she used this illustration, which I'm not qualified to use, so forgive me, but waiting for the final return of Christ and the final restoration and judgment and salvation is like being pregnant. You're expecting a baby. And of course, it's a common biblical metaphor, Right? It talks about birth pains, right? It talks about this, this pain that comes before the birth. And we're expecting something to happen. And so the tension builds, the expectation builds. Now, this is what Christians are like. We're waiting for this baby to be born. We're waiting for Jesus to come and the world to be restored and justice to be restored and salvation to be revealed. As you're waiting for a baby, I am told, I have observed please be gracious to me, <laughs> that some expectant mothers focus on all the things that could potentially go wrong. And so you think about what the doctors can do, right? You think about chemical imbalances that can occur. You think about not being able to get to the hospital and having to give birth in a cab. You think about all those things, right? And it's easy to embrace that kind of catastrophic thinking. And you just, you're just so focused on the birth. You're just so focused on all the things that could possibly go wrong that, that you forget about the baby. But I am told that most mothers actually think beyond that. And in my example here is they think apocalyptically. They're not thinking catastrophically, but they're thinking apocalyptically. They're thinking beyond the pain. 
They're thinking beyond the difficulties, and they're thinking to that baby that will be born. And so their thoughts are mostly occupied with nursery decorations and buying cute baby clothes and sending out the announcement and taking pictures and holding the baby in her arms. That's apocalyptic thinking. This is a good example for us as we go into this next year that, by all accounts, promises to be difficult. Social trends are not good, right? If you think catastrophically, every day you're going to expect the end of the world. Every day somebody's going to tell you, if this happens tonight, tomorrow, all doomed. It's all doomed, right? And you can easily stay there. You can easily occupy your thoughts by all the bad things that are happening. But to think apocalyptically as a Christian, you will think that all those things are somehow are precursors. They're somehow pointing to the salvation that is about to be revealed. That somehow all of that is going to lead to Jesus coming back. And when he returns, you will come into possession, full possession of your inheritance. Catastrophic thinker just thinks about the end of the world, but an apocalyptic thinker thinks about a new world that is to come, the new heaven and the new earth. So when you read Revelation, last two chapters of Revelation, think about that. The new world that is revealed, the new heaven and the new earth, the new justice, the new beauty, the vindication, the salvation that comes the inheritance that is imperishable, it's undefiled, it's unfading, ready to be revealed for you, for God's children, those whom he has redeemed by his mercy.